The year was A.D. 47. It was springtime, and the Apostle Paul is rushing to get to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost. He and his small band of gospel ministers have spent the last year ministering in the outer reaches of Macedonia and Greece, spending the winter months in Corinth, but now, now they are headed back to Jerusalem at breakneck speed. As if driven by some inner compulsion, Paul is determined to get to the holy city before the feast. So sailing from port to port along the Aegean coast of Asia Minor, Paul makes the decision in the interest of time to sail past Ephesus so that he will not be held up there by the pressing needs of the church. Paul had departed from Antioch, his home church, his sending church, nearly five years earlier, and had spent three solid years in the city of Ephesus, preaching the gospel, teaching the word, reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue and with the Gentiles in the hall of Tyrannus. And during this three-year period, the church at Ephesus had been firmly established on that one foundation, which is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Even in the midst of great toil and tribulation and opposition, according to Luke in Acts 19.10, while Paul and his band of ministers were there located centrally in Ephesus, all the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul loved the Ephesian church intensely, but he knew that if he went there, it would be impossible for him to leave in a timely manner. If he went to Ephesus, he wouldn't make Jerusalem by Pentecost. And though no one else seemed to understand, he had to get to Jerusalem. So he decided to sail past Ephesus and to stop instead at the port city of Miletus, about 30 miles to the south along the coast. But the pastor in him simply could not sail so close to Ephesus without finding out about their welfare and encouraging them in their faith. And so instead of going to the church at Ephesus, he called the elders of the church to come to him at Miletus. And when they arrived, he spoke to them words which have tremendous bearing upon our topic today and over the next few weeks. Beginning in verse 18. And when they, that is the elders, came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples away after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said all these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Who are these men that Paul addresses? Who are these men to whom he passes the mantle of leadership in the church at Ephesus and charges them to teach, to shepherd, to oversee, to protect, and to give their very lives for the flock? Who are these men to whom Paul entrusts the church of God which he obtained with his own blood? Luke identifies them with one word in verse 17. They were elders. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. What are elders? Where do they come from? What do they do? How many are there? What kind of men are they? These are important questions for which we need biblical answers. Why? I want to suggest two major reasons why this topic is of vital importance to the New Testament church. Reason number one is because elder leadership is the biblical model of church leadership and there is no other. Paul established the Ephesian church and evidently he established it to function under the care of elders. The same was true as we read through the book of Acts, of the churches of Galatia, Acts 14.23, and the churches of Crete, Titus 1.5, and it is safe to assume every other church Paul planted. When Paul planted a church, he placed that church under the leadership of elders. Therefore, I suggest that elder leadership is the biblical model for the New Testament church. Therefore, if we would be a healthy New Testament church, we must have healthy New Testament elders. Reason number two 
that this topic is of vital importance to the New Testament church. Without elders, the sheep will be shepherdless. You get that idea from what Paul tells the elders from the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Without the shepherds, the sheep will not be fed the word of God. Without the shepherds, they will not be protected from the savage wolves that seek to devour them with their false doctrine. Without the shepherds, who, are, who will seek after them and rescue them when they wander off and go astray? Simply put, sheep cannot survive apart from watchful, caring shepherds. They will perish. So over the next three weeks, I hope to answer some of the questions related to biblical eldership from Acts chapter 20 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and a host of other New Testament passages. This week we will examine the office of elder itself, looking at the position, and then over the next two weeks we will turn our attention to the qualifications of an elder, looking at the person. Then the fourth week of August... We will examine the roles and the qualifications for deacons, which is the other position of leadership which God has ordained for the New Testament church. And at the end of today's message, I'm going to take just a few minutes and I'm going to explain why we are taking a break from the study of Mark in the month of August to address this topic. Why now? As I hope you will see, this topic is of immediate an immense importance to First Baptist Nixa. So there are five issues related to the office of elder I'd like to cover today. Five issues. First, we need to begin by recognizing that the New Testament actually uses three different words or names to refer to the one biblical office. Now, this fact has led to no small degree of confusion in the church over the years. I grew up Southern Baptist, and I have been a member of a Southern Baptist church since I was nine years of age. But it was not until I entered into seminary at age 22 that I remember actually hearing the word elder used in church. So I'm sympathetic when lifelong Baptists hear the word elder and and their immediate thought is, isn't that Presbyterian? Or when they read the word elder in the Bible and, and think, well, why doesn't our church have elders? Or as I heard from a church member once, I always just thought elders referred to older men in the congregation. Well, allow me to respond to those Briefly, number one, no, elders are not found only in Presbyterian churches. Number two, all Baptist churches have at least one elder. More than likely, they call him pastor. Although, I would hasten to add that just because a church has a pastor does not mean that it practices biblical eldership. And number three, The biblical word elder has a much more specific meaning than simply one who is advanced in age. It speaks more to their character than to their mileage. So to begin to understand what an elder is, we first need to examine the three New Testament terms which refer to the one biblical office. So the term that is used the least, ironically, 
in the New Testament, I say ironically because it's used the most in Baptist churches, is the Greek term poimen, which translates to shepherd or pastor. The noun pastor is actually used only once in the New Testament to refer to the biblical office. That's in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, where Paul says that he, Christ, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, the grammatical construction of Ephesians 4.11 indicates that pastors and teachers probably refers to one group, one office, and it's commonly, almost universally understood to refer to the office of elder. So only once is the noun form used. There's a couple of times where the verb form, paimeno, which means to shepherd, is used in conjunction with the office of elder. We've already read one in Acts chapter 20 where Paul, speaking to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 17, exhorts them in verse 28 to care for, your Bible may say, to shepherd the same word, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Similarly, in 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, there's that word, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Then two verses later, Peter refers to the Lord Jesus as the chief shepherd, which indicates that he understood these elders as being under shepherds because you can't have a chief shepherd without having other shepherds of whom that chief is chief. So pastor, poimen, is equivalent to elder. They're not two different things. A pastor is an elder and an elder is a pastor. And the word pastor is actually descriptive of the shepherd-sheep relationship which exists between the elder and the church. The second word that is used for the office of elder is the Greek term episkopos, which translates, depending on your Bible, as overseer or bishop. Now again, our, our passage in Acts 20 helps us see how these terms are used interchangeably. Speaking to the Ephesian elders, verse 17 of Acts 20, Paul says again in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So the elders are overseers and the overseers are elders. Overseer is a term that is descriptive of the responsibility which the elder has to manage and oversee and administrate the church. You also see the synonymous nature of these terms in the list of qualifications that are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 gives qualifications for overseers. Titus 1, 5 through 9 gives qualifications for elders. And they're nearly identical because they're referring to the same group. In fact, in Titus 1, 5, he refers to elders. And in Titus 1, 7, he refers 
to overseers, speaking of the same people. So you've got pastors. Pastors are elders. You've got overseers. Overseers are elders. And finally, you've got the word elder itself, which is the Greek term presbyteros, from which we get our word presbyterian. As you can see by now, elder is not a Presbyterian word. It's a biblical word. And it is the word that is used most often in the New Testament to refer to this one office of leadership. Probably is descriptive of the maturity and the wisdom to be found in the elder and the respect which is due to his office. So pastors, overseers, elders, when you read your New Testament and you see any one of those three words, they're all three referring to the one biblical office. For our time moving forward, I'm going to use the word elder because it's the one far and away used most often in the New Testament. It's the preferred term. All right, now we come to the origin of the office of elder. Where did this idea of eldership come from? Well, the answer to that question is rather complex, but for our purposes, I simply want to establish that the idea of elder leadership was not new with the apostles or the first century church. They didn't make it up. Elder leadership had been around at least since the nation of Israel was in the land of Egypt. The first time the elders of Israel are mentioned in Scripture is in Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, where the Lord commanded Moses out of the burning bush, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying... I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they, the elders, will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. When God sent Moses back to the people of Israel, he didn't send them to the whole congregation. He sent them to a group of men that he referred to as elders. And the elders of Israel actually accompanied Moses and Aaron as they went before Pharaoh and demanded that he let God's people go. The elders of Israel continued to play a prominent role in the life of Israel throughout the days of their wilderness journeys, throughout the days of the judges, even throughout the days of the monarchy when Israel had a king to rule over them. The elders were occupying positions of leadership during and after the days of exile in Babylon, and even on into the days of Christ. Cornelius Van Dam, brother of Jean-Claude, just kidding, in his excellent book entitled The Elder, explores the Old Testament foundations for the New Testament office. Now, he admits that there, there are significant areas of discontinuity between an Old Testament elder and a New Testament elder, but 
His thesis, the thesis of his book is that the fundamental roles and responsibilities and qualifications of an elder, whether in the New Testament or the Old Testament, remain very much the same. At their best, the elders of Israel were wise, godly, mature men, respected in their communities, who were responsible for teaching, judging, and leading the people in faithfulness to the covenant which God had made with them. Now, admittedly, in the Old Testament, those elders often failed miserably in their endeavor. And eventually, the elders of Israel were among those religious leaders, along with the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the chief priests, who plotted for Jesus' death. But the ideal of the Old Testament elder was not so different from the ideal of the New Testament elder. What is a New Testament elder? A wise, godly, mature man, respected in his community, who is entrusted with the task of leading the people of God in faithfulness to the new covenant in Christ. It's the same office. Therefore, when the new covenant church began to take form in the book of Acts, a a church that initially was comprised entirely of Israelites, it was the most natural thing in the world for them to gather themselves into assemblies called synagogues. In fact, the very first epistle of the New Testament written, the book of James, refers to the church as a synagogue in James 2.2. It's the most natural thing in the world that they should gather themselves into assemblies, first called synagogues, then called churches, and that these synagogues or churches should be led by elders. Why was that natural? They'd been doing it for 1,500 years. And so we read in the book of Acts that the elders in the Judean church in Acts 11.30 are the ones who receive the contribution from from Paul and Barnabas when they returned back uh, with the contribution for the famine in Jerusalem. In Acts 15, it's the elders along with the apostles who are deciding the issue of whether Gentile converts to the faith need to be circumcised and submit themselves to the law of Moses. The apostles, we find, appointed elders in the Jerusalem church to lead in their absence when they went abroad on this global gospel mission. And when Paul and Barnabas finished their first missionary journey, Acts 14.23 specifically says they retraced their steps back through the regions of Galatia and they established or appointed elders in every church. Elder leadership has always been God's plan for God's people. Number three. The responsibilities of the office. Now we come to the question of what elders do. What is their role and function and responsibility within the church? I'm going to give you three words that I think summarize and encapsulate the responsibilities of elders. First, elders lead the church. This speaks to the elders' responsibility to govern or manage or oversee or administrate the church's ministry and the church's members. I want to take you to two passages in 1 Timothy. Turn there with me. First, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. 
Paul writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Evidently, elders rule. The Greek word there is proistomy, and it speaks of exercising a position of leadership. It speaks of ruling, directing, managing, being the head of an organization. The same word, proistomy, is used, although it may be translated differently, it's used two chapters earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 with reference to the qualification for these elders who rule. Paul says he must manage, there's that word, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage, proistomy, his own household, how will he care for God's church? Do you see the connection Paul's making here? An elder leads the church just as the father leads the home. Therefore, if a man is unable to lead his own family well, he is unqualified to lead the church. So an elder has the responsibility within the household of faith that is congruent to his responsibility within his own household. So what is that responsibility of a father to his family? Well, he leads, he trains, he instructs, he corrects, sometimes he disciplines, he plans, he administrates, he provides, and he does all of these things because he loves. The office of elder is a decision-making office with real God-given authority exercised in love. Second, elders teach the church. Elders are the primary, but not the only, teachers of the Word of God within the church. And to them is given the responsibility for the sound doctrine of the church, which at times involves refuting and condemning false teachers and false doctrines. This is evident from a host of verses, many of which we've already mentioned. Ephesians 4.11 says that the ascended Christ gave to the church pastor-teachers whose responsibility, verse 12, it is to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.2 it is an essential qualification for eldership that a man be able to teach. In Titus 1.9, Paul says that elders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder, therefore, must be theologically sound, theologically astute, at times, theologically precise. All elders must know the faith once for all delivered to the saints like the back of his hand. And he needs to be able to teach the faith, to counsel in the faith, and to defend the faith when it comes under attack. Even though the word elder is not used in the passage, it's clearly to elders that Paul refers when he instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who then will be able to teach others also. Elders teach the church. Finally, elders shepherd the church. Now clearly, the shepherding role of elders is not distinct from the leadership and the teaching role. In other words, the way in which an elder shepherds is by leading and teaching. But I threw this third word in there because it gets to a nuance that I don't want you to miss. I hope to convey something, by using the word shepherd, I hope to convey something of the stewardship and concern which a shepherd has for the sheep who are entrusted to his care. Just as it is the responsibility of an earthly shepherd to watch over the sheep, to guard the sheep, to nurture the sheep, to feed the sheep, to guide the sheep, to protect the sheep from predators, to seek after the sheep when they wander and go astray, and ultimately to bring the sheep back to the home of the master who owns them. So it is the responsibility of the shepherd elder to watch over, to guard, to nurture, to feed, to guide, to protect, to seek after, and ultimately to bring those souls under his care into their heavenly home and to the master who bought them. This is what Paul meant in Acts 20, 28, when he exhorted the elders of the church at Ephesus to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, that is, to shepherd the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. That's why Peter wrote to the elders in the churches that were receiving his first epistle, saying, so I exhort you, elders, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the church of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the calling of an elder is to be a shepherd of souls. That's primarily the way that I see myself. I don't primarily see myself as a leader of an organization. I don't like that very much. I don't even primarily see myself as a teacher. I primarily see myself as a shepherd of souls. Specifically, those souls that are entrusted to me in this local church in a mutual covenant entered into that we call church membership. My responsibility as an elder in this church, alongside my fellow elders, which right now are Gordon and Mike, is to shepherd every one of you members from the day you come to me through membership, from the day that God entrusts you to my care, no matter what condition you are when you come, and to lead you safely through the wilderness of this life, leading you to green pastures week by week and feeding you there with the word of God, guarding you from wolves that would seek to devour you, 
seeking after you when you wander astray and going after you to find you and to bring you back to the fold, binding up your wounds when you get hurt, comforting you when you are anxious and afraid, helping you to become strong and healthy along the way, and eventually, this is the joy of Christian funerals, eventually presenting you on the day of your death blameless with great joy to the Lord who purchased you at the price of his own blood. The role of the shepherd is both public preaching and intensely personal counseling. And it's hard work, but it's glorious work. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. That's what elders do. They lead, they teach, but ultimately they shepherd. Now let's speak very briefly to the accountability of the office of elder. Now we've seen that God has granted to the elders of the church great authority and great responsibility within the New Testament church to lead, teach, and shepherd the flock of God among them. But all of these elders are just men. And therefore, they are not given a blank check of authority without any checks and balances worked into the New Testament church. In other words, there is great accountability to the office of elder as well. There are three levels, in fact, of accountability with which an elder faces. First, an elder is accountable to the other elders in the church. Which is one of the reasons why no elder should ever serve a church alone. Ever. Now I'm going to have more to say on this in just a moment, but an elder should never serve by himself. If a church cannot establish itself with two or more elders, it should not establish itself. It It should join another one. He should always serve with other elders who can hold him accountable to both his doctrine and his conduct. Now, this accountability among the elders is established in 1 Timothy 5.19, where Paul gives instruction to the elders for how to hold one another accountable and how to rebuke an elder who persists in sin. So there's a mutual accountability among the elders. Secondly, there is an accountability to the congregation. Although the discussion would take us well beyond the pale of this message, It's kind of fun to have if you want to have it, but we'd do that in private. There is good reason to believe that the New Testament establishes that the congregation has authority to both call and therefore to dismiss its own elders. Okay, This is where congregationalism comes in. I believe the New Testament establishes that the church has the authority to call and dismiss its own elders. Therefore, if an elder is derelict in his duty or fails to live in a manner worthy of his calling or teaches false doctrine, the congregation has both the authority and the responsibility to remove him as an elder and to discipline him as a member. That's why our Constitution has that uh, apparatus in place where the congregation can call for the dismissal of an elder who runs haywire. Third, and finally, the elder is ultimately accountable to God himself. 
Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much has been given, much will be required. And to the elders has been given much authority within the church, and from the elders will be required much faithfulness and fruit. The author of Hebrews points to this divine accountability when he writes to the church, to you, and he says, obey your leaders, you can substitute elders in there, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So just as a shepherd is accountable for the sheep under his care, and he has to bring all of them back, so will the elder one day be held accountable for the souls that have been entrusted to him. And as Peter noted, the faithful shepherd. Those shepherds who serve willingly, eagerly, humbly, they will receive on that day from the chief shepherd the unfading crown of glory. What then do you suppose that the unfaithful shepherd, who shepherds under compulsion or out of greed or arrogance, is going to receive from him? There is an accountability. There is a day of reckoning for all elders. So it's a very serious task to which we are called. Finally, I want to say a word regarding the plurality of the office. I'm going to state my point clearly and unambiguously here so as not to be misunderstood. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find any evidence whatsoever that a church, no matter how small, had only one elder. Never, nowhere, ever added those parts in. Every time in the New Testament we find a reference to elders, you will always find the plural noun, elders, attached to the singular object, church. The elders of the church. Let me run through a very quick survey of the New Testament that will bear this out. Don't turn there, just look and hear. Acts 14.23, when Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts 20, 17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, plural, and deacons, plural. 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular, as I directed you. Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders, plural, And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 1-5, so I exhort the elders among you, plural. In verse 5, you men who are younger, be subject to the elders, plural. 
And the last two references from 1 Peter and James are significant because they were written to many churches and not just one, giving you the idea that the apostles expected there to be elders in every church to which they wrote. Add to this that the Jerusalem church had a plurality of elders, Acts 11.30, 15.2, and I think the evidence is overwhelming. No church, no matter how small, should have only one elder. And that's a very significant statement in the Southern Baptist Convention. Most churches in the SBC have only one elder, and I'm saying humbly they're wrong. It's unwise. Why? Why does the Bible call for a plurality of elders to lead a local congregation? I'm going to read you two quotes from probably the finest theologian in the 20th century. His name's Wayne Grudem. He says this, A common practical problem with a single elder system is either an excessive concentration of power in one person or the excessive demands laid upon him. In either case, the temptation to sin are very great, and a lessened degree of accountability makes yielding to temptation more likely. It has never been the pattern in the New Testament, even with the apostles, to concentrate ruling power in the hands of any one person. Quote number two, the strength of this system of government, plurality of elders, is seen in the fact that the pastor does not have authority over his on his own over the congregation, but that authority belongs collectively to the entire group of elders. Moreover, the pastor himself, like every other elder, is subject to the authority of the elder board as a whole. This can be a great benefit in keeping the pastor from making mistakes, amen, and in supporting him in adversity and protecting him from attacks and opposition, amen. In other words, The Bible calls for churches to be led by a plurality of elders for the purposes, here they are, of shared responsibility and shared accountability. Now, I've been ringing this bell of elders in the church for a number of years now. Uh, I shared these convictions, laid them out on the table with the search team that met with me four years ago before I ever came. I've spoken consistently On this topic throughout my time here, a couple of summers ago, our church reworked the First Baptist Nixa Constitution to reflect these convictions, ratified that new constitution in December of 2015, but now the time has come to add one further element. Here's where the relevance comes in. Everybody with me? Never in the history of God's people, until very recently, on the scene of church history, whether we're talking about the elders of Israel or the elders of the church, never in the history of God's people have the elders come exclusively or even primarily from outside the local congregation of God's people, ever. But that's the situation we have here at First Baptist Nixa. Gordon, Mike, and I were all brought in from outside to lead this congregation. And that's okay so far as it goes. But the biblical design is for the church to be led by men from among you. 
men whom you know, men whose lives you have watched, men who have earned your respect, men who already have a measure of authority within the church by sheer virtue of their godly lives and their spiritual giftedness, men who will remain long after vocational pastors from the outside are gone, men who will continue shepherding the flock in covenant faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not raising alarm and saying everything here is wrong. It's not the case. Gordon's been here 20 years. I've been here almost four. Mike's been here almost three. We're part of you now. (laughs) We just weren't at the beginning. And by God's mercy and grace, it has turned out okay. It has turned disastrous in other churches. So what I want to do is to remedy this situation by calling from among you elders whom God will raise up in your midst just like the Bible designed to serve along Gordon, Mike, and I who have become a part of you. See, we need to disabuse ourselves of the notions that, number one, all elders need to be paid. They don't. 1 Timothy 5.17 suggests a distinction between what we might call vocational or paid elders and non-vocational or unpaid elders. I'm going to spend about 10 minutes at the start of next week discussing that for you. So if that's a new idea for you, just hang on a week. And number two, we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that all elders need to be brought in from outside. They shouldn't. The church should nurture and grow its own leadership from within. This is the biblical design for church leadership, and I'm going to begin next week with an explanation of why. So, in the month of August, we will focus upon the subject of elders and deacons their respective functions and qualifications. And then, beginning the first Sunday in September, we're going to begin receiving nominations for both elders and deacons. A strong, healthy, biblical church starts with strong, healthy, biblical leadership. So here's what I'm going to ask for you. I don't want you to do anything over the next four weeks except pray. I want you to pray that God would call from our midst elders and deacons to lead and to serve this church. As I go through the qualifications for both groups, you pray that God would bring men into your mind and you say, you know who I think he's describing? I think he's describing, and you fill in the blank. We'll do this on a regular basis. If we don't receive any nominations for elders this year, that's okay. It's okay. We'll try again next. But a healthy church produces its own leadership. And I want to be a healthy church. So let's pray together to that end.